everyone. Welcome to the Oxygen Addict Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. You can personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best. You can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes and carbohydrate fuel with the code OA23 at PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Coach Rob Wilby, and every week I bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you along your endurance training journey. Today, I've got a great interview lined up for you with one of our age groupers, Ian Smith. Ian um, has had a fantastic performance recently out at Ironman New Zealand. He's got a really interesting story about moving to Australia and training out there and swimming with sharks and all kinds of crazy stuff. But he's a real hard worker and he's made some massive, massive gains in the relatively short period of time he's been with us. So if you're one of these athletes who's not convinced whether it's possible for you to make progress at the age of the other side of 50. Tune in for Ian's story later on. It's it's an amazing one. I think you're really going to get a lot from it. And, you know, there's no secrets in there. He's just done an awful lot of hard work and been really dedicated. So hang around for that for later on. Now, before we get to that, though, um, I have got a Coach's Couch special edition here with Coach Chris Palfram, and we've been talking about the ways we can help athletes to get their long rides done during the winter in the time when the weather might be really unpleasant and frankly sometimes not even safe to get outdoors so we're going to kick this episode off with um with the coach's couch between chris and i discussing the best ways that we can get you to get more of your long rides done this winter time chris how are you doing today hello everyone hello rob i'm very well thank you we've spoken to dozens of athletes between us over the last couple of weeks around the challenges that they're having so we thought we'd jump on this and it'll be a great opportunity to essentially give you the benefit of our coaching wisdom around how to get your long rides done during the winter time that doesn't default to you saying either i can't get the long ride done because the weather's terrible or i can't get it done because it's too long to do on swift or i just try to do an outdoor ride and it was just too cold and unpleasant to do that. So there's tons and tons of tips we can give you that we've picked up along the way. And we were reflecting, weren't we? A lot of this stuff is only obvious if you've been in the sport for a long time and you've done this year and year out and you've ridden your bike to work and you've ridden every Sunday since you were 14 years old in some cases. So let's talk on this to start with, Chris. I think the most important place to start is the the how and the why of why the long, easy, aerobic, conversational weekly ride is so important to athletes who are racing any distance from sprint distance to athlon all the way through to, to Ironman. Yeah, I think um, I think that's spot on. Before we get into the how we do it, we need to understand the why. And once you understand the why, I think you're more likely to get outside the door when, when times are challenging with the weather. Um, you know, doing a three-hour easy ride in the summer is very different to doing a three-hour easy in January in the UK. And, you know, I feel that I can relate to the athletes on this because I'm essentially going through the same thing with my own training. And every time I get on the bike, I feel that I'm gutted that some of the athletes that I'm coaching and that we talk to um, in circle and, you know, all our team athletes, I'm gutted that they're not having the same experience because they've come across a barrier that is stopping them from getting out on the bike on that kind of weekly basis so in the next few minutes if we can get one or two people out that are keen to get out but there's a barrier in the way then I think we're going to be really happy as coaches knowing that we've helped one or two along the way 
Yeah, totally. So athletes be coach, it's really targeted at people who are, are really struggling to get the long ride done, even though they want to. Athletes that we maybe don't coach, we've had, you know, loads of emails through and comments on YouTube in the past few weeks. So thank you very much if that's you that said uh, that sent any of those through. A little interjection here. If you haven't liked and subscribed on YouTube at the moment, if you could do that, that'd be a massive help for us and for the channel because we're really trying to grow essentially the amount of good compassionate coaching advice that's out there at the moment so if you're watching on youtube right now like and subscribe if you've listened to the podcast go to youtube and like and subscribe later on that'll help us as well so to come back to this then chris the main reason that we want to get the long outdoor aerobic ride done why is it so important during winter for athletes when we've traditionally always talked about we're doing a reverse periodization and we're making people train really hard on the bike during the winter. And then there's a possibly seeming, it doesn't quite fit in with that philosophy that we've still got a long aerobic ride and a long aerobic run in there. So let's talk about what they're there for. Yeah. And this, um, you know, I'm quite keen to not make it overly complicated to the point where it becomes alienating, but Essentially, the vast majority of our athletes at the moment are going through um, an FTP build phase. And so that means that over two, call it key sessions during the week, they're really working hard, mostly indoors on Zwift or equivalent, which we fully support. You know, during the week, most people have got jobs and you've got that hour and it's an hour of power where you need to get as much of your physical output as possible out during that time so it makes total sense to do that indoors but these two rides that you're doing on a weekly basis really need to be supported by a big aerobic ride and without if you take out that aerobic ride or if you highly edit it and cut it in half or even less then the overall package of your ftp call it 16 weeks has been massively compromised and the idea is that once you come out of this phase of um of training your ftp has risen but at the same time your aerobic base your aerobic foundation is large enough to benefit from that increased ceiling and so if we're only going to work on our ftp and any other ride is kind of symbolic and very short that's fine but you can't expect your overall triathlon package to improve because we're we're in an endurance sport and therefore our aerobic capacity is kind of fundamental. So, you know, for me personally, I'd love to see an athlete tick off the two FTP rides and give it 100%. But then when it comes to that weekend ride, you've got to see it on the same kind of priority list it's it's there to be done it's it's not just that we're trying to fill your week with some aerobic exercise just to keep you moving this is this is a crucial element of your training um so rob i don't know you know you've got years and years and years of experience coaching athletes how do you get the athlete to understand that ftp of course is crucial but that that aerobic ride is there for a reason. Yeah. So the way I've always broken this down is if we use the analogy of a car, the FTP sessions that you're doing during the winter are there to make the engine size bigger. 
the weekend aerobic rides are there to essentially make your fuel supply more efficient. And if we break it to its very basic physiological facts, what you're doing by going out and doing a long, steady aerobic conversational ride is you're gradually increasing your body's ability to use fat as a fuel rather than carbohydrate. And there's a really interesting thing happens. If you look at the, the science and literature around this, if you progressively get somebody to ride a little bit harder and a little bit harder, the body will start off you know, riding really easy, and they'll mainly be using fat as a fuel. If you get beyond a certain threshold, the fat doesn't keep getting used as a fuel. It gradually tails off and we switch over into a carbohydrate mainly or entirely mechanism. So the FTP sessions are fantastic for doing what they're aimed to do, which is make your engine size bigger, make you more powerful, make you stronger on the bike. But the aerobic ride is there to make sure that we can burn fat as a fuel. And if you don't get those done, especially if you're a long distance athlete, you're going to be missing a massive, massive part. Now, modern society is not going to like this. Tim Ferriss is not going to like this. There is no hack to this. There is no way to make it work shorter. There is no way to get a three hour ride done in one hour. You need to be hanging out at or about the point where your body is using fat to its maximum ability. And that's what we describe as like a zone two, right? The sort of the mid to top of zone two in your heart rate or 60, 65% of FTP. That's where your body is maximally using its fat. And because it's doing that, it's getting more efficient at it and it will gradually be able to produce more energy from the same amount of effort from your point of view. If you don't hang out there, if you go for a group ride and you blast up hills and you race each other and you sprint all the time, you can as good as turn off your fat supply and your body never gets better at doing that. So if you're an athlete who finds that you've got to take tons and tons and tons of food when you're out on the long ride, that's a bit of a lead to you that the, the long ride isn't having the effect that we want it to do. So especially to summarize, especially for long distance triathletes, that is a really important ride to get done week in and week out. So let's address the ways athletes can either get out of the door when it's safe to do so or to, and people are going to hate us for this, to find a way to get that ride done indoors on Swift as well. Let's kick yeah. off with that. So um, my kind of starting point is when I open the curtains in the morning, I'm saying to myself, I'm going to go out and then I'm opening the curtains to see how I need to adapt my clothing, whatever it might be to make sure that I can still go out. So you open the curtains, you know, it's safe. There's absolutely no signs of ice. The wind is below 40 miles an hour, which is at the point where it starts to get really dodgy. Other than that, me personally, as long as you've got the right you're getting kit, it done, you're exactly. absolutely fine. You yeah. can get it done. So I'm going to interject to make that yeah. just for a second, because you say your ride starts when you get up in the morning. I'd actually advise athletes to make their long ride start the night before. Mm. And the most important thing this time of year is that you do not have a catastrophic accident caused by ice. Mm. And so checking the weather forecast, if it's looking like it's going to go under three degrees overnight, there's a very good chance out in the countryside it'll be even colder and there might be ice on the road and that's the point i'm going to say to people look let's divide this into two sections we're absolutely going to get you out the door if it's safe to do so but if there's any chance of ice on the roads my advice is don't even risk it in the slightest and people are going to laugh at me for this but i've been in the sport a long time i've had friends have literally catastrophic life-changing accidents caused by ice one very recently actually and it is just not worth the risk so there's my first thing if it's gonna happen 
check the forecast from the day before. And then, you know, in the morning, okay, well, if it was three degrees overnight, scratch it and you're on the turbo, but you're dead right. Let's say that the forecast is above that. It's going to be, it's going to be chilly. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be windy. It's going to be rainy. Guess what? You're living in Great Britain in the wintertime. Talk us through your process. Exactly. So assuming it's between five and 10 degrees, um, as Rob just said, if you can get everything set up the night before, it's you're, you're already halfway there. So get all your electronics charged up so you don't have that excuse. You've got your route on your computer. That's all sorted. So the bike is ready to go. You've got your water bottle sorted. You've got your nutrition. So literally all you have to do is put on the correct clothing, have your breakfast, and you're out the door. And I... Personally, you know, I started the year off the first kind of few rides. I fell into the trap of not doing that. And I'll oh, just sort it out in the morning. I'd rather have half an hour, you know, relaxing with my partner, whatever it is. But yeah. actually, if you can, you know, just before bed, sort that out, it makes a massive difference. Um, and then secondly, when you open the curtains, you're just looking for that information of do I wear A, B or C? It's not should I should I ride or not? Because you've already made that decision. You know, it's going to be perfectly safe. So then it's about I, I kind of break it up into three categories of temperature and depending on that temperature i adapt so when it's um you know around that five degrees to me that's going to be the coldest i ride in and i know exactly what my clothing is for you know call it five to eight degrees i know exactly what i've got i've got a little drawer sorted i get those winter gloves the winter tights the winter base layer the winter jacket all of it the um overshoes so i know what that is when it goes from like eight to ten degrees there's kind of that midpoint where if i wore all that kind of heavy winter kit I'm going to start sweating and that's actually what's going to cause me to get cold because the sweat is just going to make my core temperature colder and it, it gets really uncomfortable when you have that horrible sweaty feel. So then I've got lighter winter kit and then you go into the 10 and above. And to me, you're getting very close to... That's normal uh, riding, isn't it? I think exactly. you've got to think of it like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yeah. can be very light kind of clothing choices. So some of the stuff that um has really helped me in my kind of winter riding experience has been start with the, the extremities so toes and hands when they're cold the rest of the body feels cold so if Game you can adjust over, those two it? things yeah big time um so for me um a kind of i'm going to try and not use brand names but um Winter Do you know glove. what? I don't think that's a bad thing. If no? you know a really, I totally, mm. if you know a really good product that's worked for you, I'm all in favor. Although, like full disclosure, we're not sponsored or affiliated or whatever. But yeah. if you've got that great thing that works for you, go for it, mate. Okay, great. Because that, that really helps because I feel as if I've been through so much winter kit. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Save everybody out there the problem of looking yeah, for it. Exactly. And so these aren't the only brands that I would encourage. It's just the ones that have worked for me. Um, so I've leaned to the UK company called Spats, um, and they are kind of specialists in winter kit. They're from Yorkshire, and they know they know their stuff. Their winter rain glove is kind of like a neoprene um, outer glove. So when your hand's in it, it completely retains all the heat from your hand, and it might get a little bit sweaty and cloggy, but you'll never get cold in it. So whether it's snowing, raining freezing wind whatever it is your hand is going to stay warm and that's an absolute game changer yeah and on top of that it keeps dexterity so if you go for a real thick um, lined glove with all sorts of features in it 
your hands on the brakes are going to feel very strange and you're going to struggle to change gear. So if you can keep that dexterity, it goes a long way. So um, hands, crucial. Same goes with feet. I'm going to talk about spats again because they were the game changer for me. Um, and I even use the, they look silly, but they work. It's a um, neoprene overshoe that doesn't just cover the kind of ankle area. It goes all the way up to the knee. Mm, and so I've therefore, seen these. I've never it, worn them, but I've seen them and they're so highly regarded. It's amazing. And the idea behind it is obviously less moisture is going to get in because it's further away from um, the external point of the shoe. But also um, when it covers your calf, it means that the blood that's circulating to your foot is already warm as opposed to cold blood pumping around around your feet. So for me, that's been a total game changer. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, so if you can nail those two elements and it's worth investing, I know, you know, mm -hmm. times are tricky for people and spending a load of money isn't always the most exciting thing. But if you can spend a little bit of extra money on, on these two elements, it's going to go a long way. Yeah, 100%. And I think... Other things for people to think about when they're riding in the wintertime is always, always, always carry with you some kind of hat or skull cap, or even people are going to laugh at this, but even an old swimming cap in your back pocket. And I literally do this all the way from September, all the way through to the end of March. It's just in my back pocket. It's either an old swimming cap or it's one of those Castelli skull cap things that take up virtually no room. The difference that can make if you get caught in a rain shower of just not getting your head wet. I think the big challenge is the wind chill factor, isn't it? Once you get wet, if you're out and it's five degrees and it's dry and sunny, that's one thing. If then clouds over and it then starts raining, you can feel 10, 12 degrees colder even. So that's the absolute important thing is being able to look after yourself and get yourself home, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I got caught in this actually, Rob. I, I feel like a bit of a joker giving all this advice, even though yesterday on Sunday, I, I made the schoolboy error. Um, I went on a long ride. We all do it. I got a double puncture, which I've never had in years um on tubeless tires glass ah. went straight through both of them and so i was fixing it and then got this horrible hailstorm and i checked the weather in the morning and it said very low likelihood of rain so i thought ah, i'll save a bit of weight and make more room in my pockets and not take a specific rain jersey and oh my god i regretted it i was there for half an hour trying to sort this bloody puncture out and um i just wish i had that extra layer while i was know sitting on the side of the road so i think it's safe to assume or especially in the uk always take a rain jacket of some sort you never know if you're caught in an emergency or a mechanical or you can help someone else or you know it's my lesson i'm definitely going to take that now absolutely well I, i've i've got an old written training diary from probably 2004 and on the front page it says in massive block capitals always take a rain jersey <laughs> And my lesson came riding through the Peak District in July and went out in shorts and shorts and shorts leaves, rode over the other side of the Peak District. Who knew? Weather completely changed and I was absolutely drenched and freezing. And it's like you just you just can't afford not to. So we're really good. I love Gore-Tex Packlite. I love mm. Gore-Tex. The new version is called Shake Dry, isn't it? Shake Dry is brilliant. Yeah, I haven't worn that, but friends who've had them have said it's just amazing. And it wraps up really small, less yeah. than a pocket full in your back jersey. It's absolute no brainer to have. And, and I think that the skull cap in your back pocket all the time are, are really things that will make the big difference. Hey, have you ever used um, those toe warmers and hand warmers? You know, the ones that you get in hiking stores where you crack them and use those? 
Um, I haven't actually personally used them. I know a lot of people from various clubs that I've been part of do rave about them, but I've, to be honest, I've never felt the need because I've always your invested. Gloves are so good. Yeah, yeah, I've always invested in the right kind of glove for me, and so therefore, I haven't felt the need. I literally don't get cold. That's amazing. The, yeah, the only thing stopping me is ice. I, it's not the cold that's putting me off. It's the risk of you know black ice around the corner that puts me yeah. off. Well, that's something people might want to try. They only cost a couple of pounds from an outdoor shop and you can have one of those in your back pocket. And if you do get really cold riding with my partner, she really suffers with cold hands. And I usually have one in my back pocket and then I can stick it in one of her gloves and she can swap it over. And that's got us home on a couple of occasions. Mm. So uh, good. I think I think we've covered almost everything on our kit list there. We haven't talked about glasses is the last thing, isn't it? And I think it's not an obvious thing during the winter time. To think about glasses but clear lensed glasses or even yellow lensed glasses they're really good at keeping the grit and the crap out of your eyes if you're riding with others and the spray coming up so that would be another thing i'd recommend people to have glasses all year round yeah talking of spray coming up um mud guards i don't care how high performance your bike is and you know i love a race bike and i love all the kind of aero gadgets that go with the race bike but this is january february march in the uk make your bike as slow as possible none of the coaches are going to be opening your data and looking for average speed it's just irrelevant at this stage we're looking at heart rate we're looking at power we're looking at perceived effort speed is irrelevant so put on some mud guards that's going to keep your back dry in all conditions and a mud guard on the front is going to keep the spray in your face it also means you can team up with someone else if you're looking for that social element um, but on top yeah. of that, if you've got a really nice bike, protect it. So you're going to protect your bottom bracket. You're going to protect um, all the bearings and you're going to protect the grease that wraps around those in your headset and all those things. So look after your bike, look after yourself. So get mud guards. It's an amazing investment. Well, I think this is a good point to talk about how to winterize your bike, because I think that the best option here is having a whole separate bike for the winter. And not everyone's going to have that. But if you do, if you have a winter bike, you can keep set up with mud guards and winter tires and all that on all year round. Perfect. But if not, I think there's a few things people can do to their really nice bike to protect it. The first one, like you said, is getting mud guards on. The second one is I'm I'm a big softy. I always change my wheels for the winter. My nice carbon wheels stay inside wrapped up during the winter and I put a pair of old school iron rims on <laughs> they're not actually iron but you know the gator gator skin tires i even run slime inner tubes all the way mm. through winter and then it really helps reduce that risk of getting punctures because it's stopping and having to change them that makes you really really cold isn't it so mud guards winter tires um puncture protection if you can possibly get it they're all really good aren't they yeah a big one for me is um when you're thinking tires, think uh, the wider, the better. So, mm. you know, you, you're going to have to look up on your specific bike, the amount of space that you've got between your brake calipers if you're using rim brakes. But for example, for me, I'm riding my, it's actually, a, it's a gravel bike, but it's essentially a road bike that allows bigger clearances. So at the moment, I've got 35 mil tires on essentially a road bike 
and I'm running the pressure at no higher than 30 PSI at all times. Right. And it's just the greatest feeling. There, there's some enormous potholes that just come around a corner. And I know one's coming up. And if I was on 25 mil tires, I'd be freaking out, having to slam the brakes on or go into the middle of the road. Whereas I know that these tires will take it. I go straight through a pothole if I have to. Everything's safe. Everything's fine. And on top of that, I don't get the kind of rider fatigue from all the vibrations and I know that that's important, but we're not in race-specific season yet. Your race, you know, sim weekends and all that will take care of the being in aero and being able to cope with the road vibrations and all that. But January, February, March, just look after yourself to the point where you're able to go and do the three hours or whatever's on your plan. And for me, running low pressures, wide tyres, um, and ideally tubeless, is it's an absolute game-changer as well. Yeah, and I, I can back that up. I changed to running tubeless after our conversation in the summer and the difference it's made to my neck soreness, shoulder soreness on long rides just from the lack of vibration is massive. So I can imagine that the super wide tires for wintertime and really low pressures are a massive, massive bonus. Okay, so I hope that has answered some of your questions with Coach Chris there regarding how to best get your winter rides done and get them done safely. Again, I can't overestimate how, I can't overstate rather how important it is. If you only remember one thing from that episode, it's not going outside riding when it's icy and there's danger of ice on the roads, even if it's, you know, not been below zero overnight, there can still be ice on the roads and it can be absolutely catastrophic. So err on the side of caution and get yourself onto Swift if you think it's been icy. And if not, if it's just cold and unpleasant, then get yourself kitted up properly and correctly. Thanks very much to Coach Chris Palferman there. If you have any questions for Coach's Couch, please fire them through to help at oxygenaddict.com. Or if you want to go over and watch over on the YouTube channel, please like and subscribe over there. That'll really help the channel grow. We're getting tons of new viewers from all around the world there and loads of great comments. And you can leave a comment there on the YouTube section as well. So before we go on to our interview of the week, I want to spend just a moment thanking the sponsors of the show, Precision Fuel and Hydration. And I know it's uh, it's a drag sometimes when you're listening to a podcast and you have to listen to a sponsor segment, but... I only work with Precision Fuel and Hydration because they are such a useful company to the athletes who listen to this show. Um, They've been with us as sponsors of the show and the team since the early days back in 2016. They started sponsoring the show, sponsoring the podcast, maybe even 2015 actually now looking back. It's seven or eight years now. They make the best electrolyte salts, I believe, in the market and it's the best solution for keeping yourself hydrated and making sure you don't suffer from cramps. If you go over to their website, precisionfuelandhydration.com, you can use the free fuel and hydration planning tool. And it's great because you'll receive personalized strategy on there for your next race and for your training tailored around you, the kind of athlete you are, the kind of sweater that you are, whether you're a heavy sweater or a salty sweater, a light sweater or a not very salty sweater. The advice they give you will be personalized to you, which I think is fantastic. It'll help you understand your own carbohydrate needs as well as electrolyte and fluid needs because they also now produce gels, chews, fuel mixes for drinks, as well as just electrolytes. So I love them. You can book a free one-to-one video consultation with PFNH's athlete support team. You can use the link in the show notes to do that, and they'll be happy to help you nail your race nutrition plan, helping you 
to perform at your best come race day. So that link is in the show notes. And remember, you can use the code OA23 at precisionfuelandhydration.com for 15% off your first order. All right, everybody. Here we go over to this week's interview of the week with age grouper Ian Smith. So first up, welcome to the podcast, Ian, from me and Chris. Um, I'm a little bit jealous of the weather where you are today down in Australia. I'm sitting here looking at the hammering rain and wind out the window here in the UK. Um, whereabouts are you joining us from exactly in Australia? So we're in Manly, so just north of the centre of Sydney. Uh, and it, today it was 28 degrees, so just a, a pretty mild summer's day down here. I don't, I don't say it's pretty jealous, but you know chris one day one day in the future it's going to be warm again here as well isn't it i know i always think you know in the summer i always think england's the best country to train in i absolutely love it and it's not actually the rain that puts me off in the winter it's the lack of light so at four o'clock it's already dark here and it's so hard to then get motivated to either go out on the you know on a run or whatever it might be it's it's that part that, that i really struggle with so yeah very very jealous of you right now Ian. And I'm going to have to ask you now to send us over a photo afterwards to use as the podcast header that's got you running in the sunshine with blue skies in the background. That'll be a little bit of a lift for everybody listening. All right. So listen, let's let's kick this off then. Um, you fairly recently moved out to Australia. It was the end of 2021 that you moved out there, wasn't it? And you were already a, was it, is that correct? End of 2021? Yeah. That's right, yeah. I had the opportunity to move out here for work at the end of 21, which is just as lockdown finished in Australia. So I've been out here just over a year now. It's gone very Okay. Cool. And your triathlon journey had started before that. You'd already, before you even met us and joined us, you'd done Ironman UK back in 2015. Um, and then okay. you joined us 2021 time. So first up, talk us through your your first experience of Ironman racing, Ironman, back in 20, Ironman UK back in 2015. Yeah, so, I mean, I was fairly new to triathlon. So my background is I did a lot of sport as a kid, lots of different things, focused on running in my sort of early teens, late teens into my 20s, then had family, all died off a bit. And triathlon was something I was kind of vaguely interested in, having seen Transworld Sport and the Ironman in Kona, et cetera, but thought it was for everyone other than me. Um, but that said, I, I did a sprint triathlon about 20 years ago. Uh, and I remember actually being completely terrified of the 700 meter pool swim which when I look back at it and think about what what we do today is quite it's quite incredible so I did a, did a sprint um and then work took over for a little bit and I did my next sprint 10 years ago um and then Heva outdoor Heva uh the Heva Olympic triathlon and then a mate of mine suggested that we did Wimbledon 70.3 um I don't know if you remember that course but that was not I a fun I course. remember it very well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is not a course for anyone that lives in the flatlands. Um, so I did that in 2014, and it was a really hot day, and it was a brutal experience. Um, but I kind of got the bug. And something after that race just made me think, oh, I just would would like to see what it's like to step up to Ironman. So I entered Ironman UK in Bolton in 2015. And, you know, shamefully, having worked with you guys for a while now and learned so much in the period of nearly two years, I just, I sort of trained myself for it. I followed that Think book um, and did everything it told me to do. And with the benefit of hindsight, made a huge amount of mistakes. 
but I quite, I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed the challenge of being completely terrified. I remember sort of for six months before that race, just almost waking up every night thinking, how the hell am I going to swim 3.8K? Uh, that was all, that was all I was focused on. It was the swim that terrified me. Um, but I did it. And I, and I don't know if you remember that, that particular year, but it absolutely belted down for the swim. Um, so at Pennington Flash in Bolton, for those that haven't done it, it's not the most, I guess, glamorous of locations, but when it when it's chucking down and you're sitting there terrified before your first Ironman, it really is kind of a baptism of fire. Um, and all I remember about that day was finishing the swim, and I came out okay actually. Just just think, almost like I've done this. I've done I've done this. Um, I've done the most scary thing, uh, and then the bike, which again, looking back on it, uh, is is quite a, it's quite a hard bike that. Um, it's back in the old day when it was two loops, Sheep House Lane and Hunters Hill. Um, I got to the end of the bike and again, I thought, right, all, it, all I need to do is walk this in and then Bolton Town Centre hits you with those big steep hills. But it was, it's, I mean, I've done a lot of things in, in my life and looking back on it, uh, it, it was something I was so proud of in myself for having completed it because the training and all, all the build up to it was something I'd never experienced before. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was fantastic, and I had the bug. I wanted to try and do more, um, but then I I, I had a, a I got hit by a car about six months later and broke my leg while I was out running, and that um, led to a series of I didn't really rehabilitate properly, should we say? So I, I didn't follow doctors' orders, tried to get back as quickly as I possibly could, and one thing led to another and I developed arthritis in my foot and I kind of for two years afterwards thought that's it game over um that's that was my chance gone I'm too old now um I'm, I'm sort of hopping along so I just just kept fit and did a bit of swimming a bit of running a bit of biking but nothing approaching what an Ironman would require um and it but it got to the stage I needed an operation to sort arthritis out my foot so I, uh I had that done um rehabilitated but I think it was a bit of stroke of luck I got put in touch with someone that was a sports related podiatrist that helped me fix the the arthritis in my foot in terms of how the, the my foot landed and referred me to a, a good physio and this was just before COVID actually so I, I managed to get myself into a physical condition where I could just do a lot more consistent hard heavy training um, and I've listened to you guys for years and I thought, well, COVID is you know, just coming to out there back end of COVID. I feel pretty fit. I need a bit of guidance to, to get myself up to the next level and then join you. Um, hence, hence we got in touch, did a couple of races last year and then we upshifted, came down here. So that's a fairly truncated history. <laughs> we can go into a bit more detail of any of those, but yeah, it was, um, not standard pathway i guess it sounds like the experience of being hit by the car and thinking that you were never going to be able to do anything again was was quite formative in in sort of in what would have been middle age really yeah no it was it was um it was it so i got i got basically i got clipped by a car i jumped into a ditch to miss it well to, uh, as a result of it and broke my leg and my foot and it was one of those moments you think when when it happened uh this isn't this isn't good um mm. but i think 
it was it was a bit of it was a number of things first of all when you're a kid and you're younger you bounce back from things really quickly this one it took years and I wasn't very patient I didn't really go and seek guidance for it and but and therefore I automatically assumed that it was the end of what I'd enjoyed doing for so many so many years and it only took I guess some smart physio and podiatrist to actually say no don't be silly if you think about it in this way you can get back to it and then you kick yourself for having not been done it two years earlier so yeah it, it, it was formative and it also then makes you think you know you need to make the most of what you got while, you, while you've got it um but there are ways of managing all sorts of situations because again when we're older you don't bounce back from any injury particularly quickly uh and i think you remember Rob, about nine months ago i had a bad achilles um and what I learned from my broken leg was actually, if you listen to advice and be a bit patient, you actually can come back from it. So that I took that on board and got through that Achilles problem as much quicker than I would have done, say, 10 years ago when I'd have been just forcing myself out. I'd been limping or taking a set of crutches and trying to do the heel rips and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you do. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how I think this will resonate with a lot of people listening and watching that when we get injuries, we can either <laughs> take this polarized view of either, well, nothing nothing can help me. I'm just going to have to either give up or put up with it. Or the opposite side, which is I'm in crippling pain all the time and I'm just going to crack on and I'm keep on, I'll keep on doing the training and try and battle through it. I think the light goes on in so many people when they go to see a good physio and or a medical person who can say no no i've i've seen this tons of times and we can absolutely fix it for you i think it can be a real watershed moment for people that i think you alluded to it then it common sense says go and see a professional but for some reason we we don't do that we we kind of withdraw into our own shell and think i'm just gonna i'm just gonna hobble around with my injured achilles for years yeah yeah we also do it way too late don't we i mean i'm probably still guilty of that um, and you try and train through it. But I think the same same is similar to training. When you're younger, or when I was younger, training meant going out and blasting yourself to bits for an hour or whatever it was, be it on the bike or be it on the run. And now you realise you can get better much more quickly by being by backing off and just doing stuff more consistently. But you, you just it's one of those things, isn't it? When you're in your early 50s, if you knew then what you know now, you just you just wonder my God, I could have been saying that I could have been so different, but that's, you know, that's true in all, all walks of life. Hey, Ian, as, um, as triathlon coaches, we've come across so many athletes with injuries and a lot of them stem from running. But in my kind of coaching career, I don't think I've ever come across a serious injury from running that isn't due to the kind of natural running impact that an athlete goes through and that actually this is a slight anomaly and that a car was involved and obviously, you know, a very serious accident. Um, I'm just wondering whether there's a, you know, a bit of a lesson for all of us. So many of us run out on the roads and was the situation one that you think you could avoid in the future and whether you've got a little piece of advice for all the runners, you know, mostly in the UK who are running in the dark. Was it a situation where you were running on a lane with no lights and, you know, what, what, what was the setup there? So, so in the, at the time we lived in Sussex, so lots of country lanes. Um, and it was, of course, I'd, I'd go down. It was in the middle of the day, actually. It was in early December, but it was the middle of the day. Uh, and I just happened to go around the course. I always 
do running on the opposite side of the road to traffic there is no path there so you're right I mean you have to think carefully about where you run and the car was coming around the corner really quickly on the other side of the road um and didn't see me till it was too late and therefore I kind of moved out of the way just as it you know and I ended up in the ditch with my leg in a funny position broke broke it and my and my foot would I do I mean do I run I wouldn't do that now no um but I did it all the time but funnily enough I, I feel always feel more exposed on the bike than I do running because I, I just find it easier to judge what's around me because you're going slower whereas you've got your speed and the cars around you when you're on the bike so but after that I mean I, if I ran at anything out other than brilliant light I'd have a headlight on me and reflective clothing but I don't think it would have made any difference it's just where I chose to run mm, I think yeah, it, was a bit so- lucky, but it wasn't it wasn't a super safe place to go with a benefit of hindsight yeah it sounds like one of those kind of crazy situations that you know you you're incredibly unlucky um and i've been talking to a few of my one-to-one athletes where um other athletes have had similar close calls um luckily they weren't ever hit by a car or anything but this is a time you know especially in the uk winter where we don't need to be running fast and therefore we can go off-road and go into the fields go onto the canal pass whatever it might be and you know, there might be a little lesson there that if we don't need to be running on the roads, if we don't need to be running fast on the roads, then there are periods of the year in the training blocks where it's okay to go off-road. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm glad that's you made a full, yeah. full recovery. Yeah, that's a really good point, Chris. Actually, the reason I was on the road is I wanted to run quickly because when you run off-road and it's muddy, you can't do the same pace. And this is kind of that mindset shift, isn't it? You look at your time that you're doing per mile and think that's the most important thing where it actually isn't exactly yeah so let's talk us through then the the move to australia getting yourself over to australia and deciding to enter um i'm on new zealand as the big race and 70.3 western sydney in the build-up to it firstly talk us through how it's different leaving the uk in you went did you have november time from memory if that's right it was just after we did bowwood wasn't it yeah yeah so it was I mean, I'd be a little bit of background. I've been the opportunity came up through the business I work with, who I've worked with for nearly thirty years now, um, and it came at the back end of COVID, and it was out, a bit out of the blue. Um, so I married my daughter's nineteen, going to university, so it's a good time in life to do it. Um, and I've always had been lucky. I've travelled a lot for work, but I've never been in one place. I've been with the same business, but pretty much in in London, the southeast. So it was like, well, should we do it? Should we not? And when it might sound like a really easy decision, but it wasn't because there's so many things that sit around you that you have to take into account. Um, but we did it. Um, we moved November last year. So we moved the first week that Australia opened up. So Australia was still pretty closed down at the time. Um, and again, when you're in your late 40s, early 50s and you move, you realise that moving from hotel to Airbnb to stuff is quite a, quite challenging compared to when you used to backpack around wherever you did when you're in your 20s and uh and actually you probably don't appreciate the change that goes on around you from being in the same house and the same job for a number of years to everything completely changed new friends new community new culture it's different culture it's very different even though we speak the same same language um but alongside that i had i had really enjoyed working with you guys i'd enjoyed bowwood i did holcomb and in my mind i wanted to the move here was around 
experiencing something different but also the outdoor lifestyle and we wanted to live by the beach and go in the ocean and we'd heard lots of stuff about the sport sporting culture so it seemed that I just wanted to you know, leverage of what I did and see what I could do but also a way of integrating into the community so the swimming community here the triathlon community of which you know, there's, there's a huge amount of stuff going on um, and I think I mean as with most people, when you do an Ironman, the best way to do it is just find something, enter it, and then chew your nails and wonder how the hell you're going to do it. <laughs> I remember, I remember when I got here that New Zealand was always on the bucket list, just because it's kind of a mythical place. I've been there once for three weeks. I absolutely love it. I mean, it, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant country. And Ironman New Zealand probably to me is second only to Kona in terms of the, the mystique and the history. And it's so far away that it's not doesn't feel that real. So it was in March 22, um, and I remember I had an ex- email exchange with you, I think, Rob, saying, I've got here, it's boiling hot. How the hell would anyone train for an Ironman through the Australian summer? Uh, and I think you said to me, get up early. <laughs> that's, uh, and that's what I did. I used to wander, wander down to the beach, and then there'd be these cyclists at half four, five o'clock. I've got jet lag at this stage, boy. Just going off on their cycle at half four, five in the morning. So I thought I would I do want to do New Zealand. And then about two weeks later it got moved from March 22 to December 22, which meant I could train over the Australian winter, have a lot more time. So I just said, well, that something's telling me that I'm going to do this. So so I entered it. So the purpose was, you know, it's a bucket list thing, but I also wanted, alongside all the change, to have something that was familiar to me, structure, um, something that was really challenging that I could sort of focus on alongside sorting out a new life and and making sure we all settled out here. So that that was the theory behind it. And and to be honest, it was probably one of the best decisions I've made from a life perspective because it it helped me do that. I I, um, I meant, you know, we're involved in, in around the sun and the surface scene down here, and it meant that I had a purpose to go down there and train, but I joined the tri club. I got to know where to cycle. I got to know people in and around that. So... Yeah, it was it was brilliant. And then alongside it, despite having new job, moving houses, I had this very clear plan about what I wanted to do and what I was training in the week and what what you know, what I was looking to achieve later in the year. So it was it worked out really well. I think it's it's really interesting the the culture of training early in Australia. It it blew me away when I was over there for the year that I lived there that it was quite standard for the the ride to meet in the dark and for the first hour or two of it to be in the dark and everyone have lights. And I remember a friend of mine buying me Craig Alexander's book after he retired as, as Ironman champion. A lot of the photos in there of him training are taken of the, the Sydney rides that leave at four in the morning. And, and it's hard to kind of fathom and get your head around the idea that from a British point of view, you live in this, this beautiful sunny paradise um, I remember being over there and one of my friends saying, yeah, that the kids can't do PE at school today because it's too hot. So they have the same sort of, you know, in England, they have to stay inside because it's raining and cold. And in Australia, there's just periods it's too hot for the kids to go outside. So it is a massive part of a, a something you might not might not consider, I think, before you go over there, right? No, exactly. And, and, and a lot of the culture here, not just around triathlon and cycling, is go to bed early, get up early. I mean, if, we, when we landed we lived in the middle of manly and we went for a walk at like half four in the morning and there were people running at half four five o'clock in the morning 
and and now it's what I'm used to. I mean, I come from Brighton originally. If you go down the beach half or five o'clock in the morning, you see very different people, right? I mean, they're, they're not home yet. So um, the whole, but the whole thing is very natural. And and even swimming now. I mean, we we go swimming when it's dark in the winter, uh, which you wouldn't conceive of doing in the UK. So yeah, no, it's 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 early to bed, but it's up early to to train. And actually, I got to, particularly on the long bikes ahead of the Ironman, I was doing the six-hour rides. I was getting up at four and out the door at half four in the morning. And I agreed to like, you know, love it. although it was a Saturday morning and it didn't make Friday night fun, it was, I really enjoyed it because I could get on the roads. There'd be no cars. You'd see the sun come up over the over the ocean and then you'd climb up into the the, um, the, the park and you'd see the sun come through the trees. And it was like, wow, oh, this is pretty special. And then you'd be home by 10 o'clock and the rest of the day would be, well, other than the brick run, the rest of the day would be yours. To, to fall asleep and be annoying to the family for having completely goosed yourself in the morning. But, yeah, I really, I really like that bit because I, I would never, I mean, normally we, we get up at 5 o'clock now and go, go down the beach, but I'd never do that in the UK. You'd sort of fall out of bed at half six to get a train. Um, and that's, So that's been really positive. Yeah. Contrast for us, contrast for us your experience of training for your first Ironman as a as sort of self-trained athlete with your experience of having trained for this Ironman along the way and, and draw out some of the similarities and differences for people. Because I think a lot of the people watching and listening are in your boat. We get a lot of emails from people who are who are first timers and who are considering doing their first 70.3 or Ironman. And it, it's generally kind of a, a help email. There's a reason we've got help yeah. as oxygen addict. It's a, I don't know what I'm doing. So contrast your experiences between the first time and, and your preparation through to Western Sydney 70.3 and then I'm in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, the differences were huge. I mean, I, I followed that Think book, which which is a fair fair plan, but the context, that's you're totally missing the context that sits around it. So if it says do an hour bike, I would just like completely smash myself to bits on the watt bike for an hour three times a week um long runs to me there would mix i come from a running background naturally you try and run as fast as you can as far as you can so a two-hour run i'll try and get close to seven minute mile pace which is just insane um you miss all the snc you miss all the the way the whole thing fits together and you miss the understanding of what you're doing all all you're trying to do is get the hours on the clock get the miles in the bank and I remember feeling very, very tired. I remember Sunday mornings, which is when I used to do my long ride, just absolutely dreading getting out of bed. I just couldn't face it. It felt very lonely as well because I was doing it on my own. Whereas this plan that I followed, I was saying this to Chris the other day, I've really enjoyed it because I felt as though I felt as though I've been improving all the time. And I felt like the strength and conditioning and the swimming and the yoga has massively helped my running I'm running pain-free now I can run three hours doing the 9-1 walk and enjoy it you know I get myself out of bed and I'm I'm running at six o'clock in the morning I see the sun come up I fuel properly I mean there was nothing about nutrition in that self-trained plan and nutrition actually has been one of my big learnings this year I used to probably go out for a run early in the morning not having eaten anything at all now I'll have something to eat and I'll fuel with a gel as I run and, and lo and behold, you feel the miles better. And then you come back and have a protein shake and you recover quick. It's not rocket science, but you know, <laughs> this is the point you learn, even in your fifties, you do, you don't learn a hell of a lot 
and it and it just made it so much more of a enjoyable progressive experience than what i remember last time which was i need to blow myself to bits do the race and then you know recover for you know do nothing for six months because i haven't got any mental energy left let alone physical energy so and then there's the community around the oxygenatic group which is which is brilliant because things you worry about you know you find out everyone else worries about it too and the imposter syndrome thing like, like i was saying the bit that freaked me out about bolton was the swim I'm, I'm a reasonable swimmer but it's still completely you know it was a mental thing whereas you, you join the group and you realize everyone feels a degree of that concern um and stuff from pacing the bike and power and you, you, the more that you share your concerns and questions the more you learn the more you build the more you develop as an athlete so although i'm yeah I'm sort of getting on a bit. I felt I've, in some ways, this has been one of the biggest learning curves of my life over the last year because I've seen how it all fits together. And I actually feel good and strong, whereas last time I felt knackered and grumpy most of the time. You could probably get third-party evidence of that for my family. I had a, um, Rob, I had a conversation with Ian um, very recently and we were kind of looking back over the past year and his build up to to the Ironman and all these things and you know we we did look at numbers in terms of power and uh, the splits that he put out on race day and all, all these things that I'm sure we'll delve into in a bit but the thing that I got the most kick out of when I was listening to his kind of review of the year were these two major points that one he basically did a full year of Ironman training and didn't suffer an injury and secondly he felt that it didn't have a negative impact on his family life, on his work life, on his social life, all these things. And I think those two key points often get lost. And, you know, we we get so focused on, I want to do my fastest bike split, run split, whatever it might be, but at the detriment of family life, whatever it may be. And therefore, it doesn't become a sustainable model. So at the end of the year, when you pitch to your family, oh, how about I do Ironman Copenhagen, for example, the family's reaction isn't going to be as supportive of you as you'd like. And when I had this conversation with Ian, you know, he did his race, he stepped back, he did a proper kind of step away from the structured training and all these things. And he's spending time with family now, which, you know, absolutely crucial. And now he feels that he's in a position where one, he's got that inner motivation after the kind of post Ironman blues, but also he feels that he can pitch the idea of another really major event in the coming season to his family and the family are going to be supportive and that to me is it just really excites me to hear that an athlete is able to balance all these things and he's still progressing it's yeah you've done really well Ian, in in terms of balancing all that Thank you. But we're going to get my wife and ask her whether she feels the same guy. <laughs> no, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, one of the things looking forward is that I'm going to try and look at different races around Australia because it's a good way for us to explore the country. You go and do a race, then you have a week afterwards just to, to just what we did in New Zealand. So it didn't feel like you, 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 everything is on the race. You've got something else to fit around it. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, listen, all of this leads to talking about the actual races themselves along the way, 70.3 Western Sydney and then Ironman New Zealand. I never done either race like you. I would have loved to have done Ironman New Zealand. The summer I was down in Australia, one of our tri-club mates did New Zealand and she came back with the same experience that you had of 
it's a mystical place it's not just it's not just a race there's something incredible about the location and the scenery um so i want to hear all about it so talk us through your build through to through to 70.3 sydney so what were your what were your your hopes your aims going into that race and how did it play out yeah so sydney so western sydney it's in, it's not actually in sydney it's in penrith which is two hours outside Sydney. So um, it's based at the regatta where the 2000 Olympics rowing was. So that's where um, Rick Rafe and Pinson won their goal. It's a fairly flat course, uh, but it has a reputation of being hot because it's in a natural bowl. So that was in September, but in the build-up to that, so training had gone well. The race ready scores I'd been focusing on. I had COVID in July, which sent me back a few weeks. But really, I just I just stuck to the program and um, got got the sessions done. The bit that I needed to focus on for that is I got a TT bike before Bowwood last year, and I got Bottrell fit. I bought it, got used. I say used to it. I got used to sitting on it and getting down into the um, aero bars just about. And then Mr. Bottrell came along and changed the front end three days before Bowood and I was all over the place at Bowood and I was like terrified and, and makes Andy heaps smile. Bike, biking was always my weaker sport, bit of the sport. So I actually just spent every Saturday ride focusing on getting comfortable in the TT and trying to find um, quiet roads where I could just get down. So it meant getting up early and going to quieter roads. And again, I felt it, I really progressed on that. So mm. Western Sydney, I mean, my previous best was uh, actually 70.3 best was at Holcomb at 517 the year before. I didn't really have an expectation of time. I just wanted to do, I just wanted to get off the bike feeling I'd done myself justice. That was my objective. So swim, I seated myself in the front group. I did 33, which was about there, thereabouts. And then the bike was a two-lap course, fairly flat, bit windy and very pothole roads and the first lap I was like a Bambi on ice I was just trying to get used to this machine and then for, for some reason something absolutely clicked on the second lap I, I I tend to have a habit of negative splitting these things because the first lap I always just sort of gauge where, where the race is and the second lap I get the confidence and I get my head down and go for it and the second lap was probably one of the most joyous experiences I've ever had on the bike I was flying I thought I've actually cracked this now. It's one of those moments in your life you think I've, I've never do this, and I'm having fun, and I I don't feel there's any impediment to going quick. So I got off the bike and I did two thirty eight, which for me was something like 20, um, 15 minutes PB on the bike, and then did a one forty run, and the run was good, but uh, I, I didn't really know what time I was aiming for. But my wife, as I got off the bike, shouted, "You're on for sub five. And I went, "Dad, don't be silly." And I thought, it almost like I didn't want to know that. Just leave me. <laughs> just, you shouldn't have told me that. It was one, one lap into a three-lap run course, and it was hard. Um, but in the end, I sprinted for the line. I got 4.55.53 or something. So I beat five hours, which was a long way ahead of what I thought I was going to do. So I was super chuffed. Um, and I just felt all of that hard work had come together. But actually, I'd so enjoyed the bike that that, that I kind of was the takeaway from the day. I can ride a TT bike. I don't feel like an imposter. Um, I probably deserve to have one. Whereas previously, I was a bit embarrassed of sitting on this machine that I thought should belong to somebody else. So, so I left that, that race feeling pretty good and thinking, well, you know, New Zealand's coming up. 
uh, and then just got stuck into the program from 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 there through to what was it early December the only slight wrinkle I, I had a bit of reaction to a COVID jab in in early November which along with you and Chris I sort of backed off a little bit adjusted training but that knocked me a little because I felt crap for a few days um and the last couple of in the program you had the six hour, the six hour bike weekends um I wasn't feeling brilliant for those but I got I got them done in fact this is where you, you guys were really helpful and it you know contrasted to my looking after myself in my mind I mean I, I don't like not doing things but equally I don't want to do stuff that's going to make me worse or make me sick um you know or set me back and I took advice from, from you guys and said go out try three hours if you feel crap turn around and go back uh, and in the end I got the six hour bike ride done and, and the last and the racing weekend I did six hours nutrition was all to plan I felt pretty pretty tired actually on the bike that wasn't the most joyous experience that was a hard hard bike but then I got off and did the 45 minute brick run that absolutely flew I thought wow you know it's just <laughs> I wasn't supposed to feel like this everyone tells me I should feel terrible and um, and I was running much quicker than I expected to. And then the two-hour run the next day went really well, fueled properly. So I just came out of the back of that, stuck into taper, feeling I've done everything I can. Um, you know, I was getting advice from lots of people. Like Chris said, get some tubeless tyres because it's really bumpy, the roads in New Zealand. So I did that, got the bike serviced. I just thought, I just don't think I can do anything more. In some ways, something's bound to go wrong because everything's gone so well so, so far. Um so we flew out, the race was on Saturday the 10th, flew out on the Tuesday. And actually on that, that that's when it went slightly wrong. I got, I, I got, someone gave me a cold or a virus. So I, my, my, um, I used Whoop and HRV is quite, being quite important to me. In fact, I used Whoop before I joined you, before COVID, because I had a habit of working hard, training hard, playing hard and, feeling run down most of the time. My Saturday afternoons would be falling asleep on the sofa. So I used Weep and I learned a lot about HRV and recovery. And my recoveries that week were a bit lower. Um, but I tried to put it out of my mind. Also, there was this sort of, as it is in the run-up to event, there's only there's Ironman New Zealand group and you make some people, you know, doing saying, oh, the weather's going to be terrible. There's a big low pressure. It's going to be a big northeasterly. It's going to be pouring with rain. And then you just, all you do is look at every version of the forecast that you can possibly find. It's all saying the same thing. Yeah, it's going to be pretty shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, it's quite good because you think, I can't deal with that. You know, I can't control that. I've done everything I can. I'm just Let's just focus on eating properly, sleeping properly and getting to the race. So yeah, I got there on the Tuesday, drove down to Talpa on the Thursday, got my bike put together by the guys in the local bike shop. Was, the thing about Talpa is that everyone was so excited that the Ironman is in town because it hasn't been there for a little while because of COVID. So being in the coffee shop or the bike shop, everyone's like, oh, brilliant, well done, mate. Like in my registration pack, I had a letter from a local school kid saying, you're awesome. And I don't know who you are, but you're awesome and you're going to have a great race. I'm so proud of you. All the, all the athletes got these little letters from school kids. Um, there were a hundred. I've never seen so many volunteers. They've all got yellow shirts on. They're all in the registration tent. They all just want to talk to you about your story. Um, it, was so, it was such a nice place to be. So the whole event sort of rolled into it. It was Mike Riley's last call on the finish line, so there was a bit of, bit of a narrative around that as well. So although like we had this impending doom of a weather forecast, 
I just felt as though oh, I'm so glad I'm here. This is this going to be really really good. Um, so well, yeah. Oh, the the other thing, lake the lake um, Lake Taupo. I've never saw anything like it. It's a big volcanic lake. So, but the water's all melt water, so it's crystal clear. Um, and you swim. And I went out for a practice swim. The bottom is just full of volcanic rocks that have been thrown out of wherever it is. There's no fish or anything. It's just like swimming in the most amazing water, freezing cold. But even that, you know, if you, some people might think, oh, it's freezing cold. I'm going to have a right old moan about it. But it felt like a, just an amazing place to be, a very, you know, very lucky to be swimming in that, in that environment. Um, so I did practice swimming, et cetera. So race was Saturday morning. Well, looked at the forecast for winter bears and it said, oh, it's still going to be windy. And the thing that bothered me was I only have one set of wheels. I've got 60 quite deep rims. And the bike is you're exposed to the wind. But again, there's not a lot I could do about that. So went, went to bed, got up to absolutely chucking it with rain, got to the um, registration, did all your stuff, bumped into Gareth from the team. Uh, but the, you, you register your bike and you go down to the swim and they have a, a Maori welcome. They do a haka. So this sort of Maori tribe come out of the gloom in this boat rowing towards you and then they welcome you with this with this haka. And I've always found stuff the All Blacks do pretty, you know, pretty motivating, pretty, it's pretty inspiring. They did that for us. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> you, get, you get goose pimples. Um, and on top of that, so you do that, and then it's the only mass start left, I think, in the world. So you go out into the lake, it's still fairly dark, still raining. Obviously, it just, just rained the whole time. Um, and I was seated, I put myself in the in the sort of first group, so which <laughs> means you're further out into the lake, so I kind of spread you out over the big start, and you tread water for about 10 minutes, and then a cannon goes, and you're off. So, and was then, that your reality, norm? In, sorry, Ian, was that your norm in terms of where you placed yourself in the uh in the sw- swim start no I, it it wasn't it was a you know it was advice that i got from you and some of the other guys I, I tend to be in the second group but at the front but one of the things i do a lot down here is swim and the, i just found the benefit of finding feet and sitting behind people is absolutely huge and it's something i'm really comfortable with and we do we we do a lot of group swims that are fairly fast and furious so i'm pretty comfortable swimming in a in a pack now so I thought well, I'll go there and I'll hang in and actually at Western Sydney one of the things I learned was no matter where you start people are going to just crawl smash you to bits anyway so you might as well just go where you want to and, and fight for your space so I'm, fight, I'm quite confident of doing that which again if you contrast to Bolton when I was just probably tiptoeing into the water hoping no one notices me and leave, you know, leave me alone I'm going to swim on the other side of the lake now I'm sort of in the middle of it all but it, you just you just a bit more confident and assertive having got that experience. Um, so yeah, the gun went, and I I found some feet, and I had to work pretty hard actually to to stay on them because everyone wanted feet, uh, which was which, <laughs> which made it quite quite a bumpy first kilometer. And I was um, and then we went on the first boy. I lost the feet and ended up having people follow me, but it was it was just. And just a great, I just really enjoyed the swim. I got out in 108, which is about where I thought I was going to. But, you know, almost with a smile on your face thinking, wow, that was as good as I thought it was going to be. Um, 
Now, the thing about Taupo is that the, the bike transition is, is about 800 metres from the lake, so you have to run up over um, a bridge and, it, and it's transition. They used to hand you your bike, which they, they didn't do this year because they didn't have quite a number of volunteers. But they hand you a bag and then you go and out, out you go on the bike, out. Um, and then it just absolutely leathered it with rain for the next five hours, pretty much. Um, and the wind and the wind came, so it's a two-lap course. Uh, it's pretty rolling, so you climb up for about five, six k, drop down, and then gradually climb up, and then it's just rolling in into this headwind, which was a bit of a grind. But follow the nutrition plan, and actually, I, I sent Chris the other day. I just had Bottrell's voice in my mind saying get out the wind, get out the wind, get out the wind. So that's what I did. When you came back, you had a bit of a tailwind, which was which was quite fun, but then you repeated it again. It kind of almost the whole weather pattern, you know, crap weather, wind back, wind behind you. And it was, it was, it was okay. I was quite pleased. So I got off in 540, which was a, like, I think an hour quicker than I did at Bolton. Um, yeah, very good, numbers, man. Very good. Let yeah. me put um, let me put that bike time into perspective. Um, so it was five hours forty, as Ian just said, and so that turns out as a speed average speed of nineteen point seven miles an hour, which is moving along on those kind of big chip roads and very rolling and terrible conditions. And then if we relate that to his heart rate, he was a um, average one three two, which is really controlled for Ian. Um, it's exactly where we want him to be. And average power, this is the one that interests me the most. Um, it's 147 average. Um, and so normalized 162, which is really low. And I'm saying that in a positive way, that he was able to translate low watts into high speed. And that's, you know, that's what we should all be looking for. It's not necessarily high watts are what we're looking for. But Ian, you know, he was talking about how much time he spent dialing in his TT bike, getting used to it, getting confidence on that, which then means that he's probably riding the corners a lot better. He's carrying his speed into the hills, all these things, which is going to smoothen out that power where he's able to essentially pedal the whole time, but at a very efficient rate and nice and consistent, nice and low. So there was no sign of heart rate drift. There was no sign of massive spikes in power, which would have then had effect on his heart rate all these things so in terms of how he delivered a five hours 40 it was super smooth really really impressive and i think that goes back to what you were saying what you were saying earlier about you got your fit with matt bottrell whatever it was three days before a half distance in the uk and and lo and behold like what a nightmare come race day but it's a long-term investment isn't it You, you know a slot with matt bottrell for a bike fit is they're as rare as hen's teeth and you've you've got to take them when you can to a certain extent but i'd expect it to take at least six months to properly bed in and probably upwards of a year before an athlete really feels okay i am now really really comfortable and as you've alluded to matt's matt's as much an artist as he is a scientist the things he'll tell you during a bike fit are much, I think, much more valuable than the position he puts your body into. Some of the things he explains about the way your body moves through the wind and the sensation of feeling the wind, it's its almost bordering on, I don't know, th- there's much more to it than just looking at a picture of a rider against a background and trying to minimize frontal area, I think. And it sounds like you've definitely got yourself to the point where for five hours 40 on New Zealand chip-sealed roads, you can cruise along in lower zone two, 
deliver a 540, which is a very decent bike split on that course. And probably were you to go to, I don't know, Austria, Roth, pick a course with smooth tarmac and and nice shallow downhills, you'd probably be looking at 515 for the same, same kind of power output, which... Yeah. You know, that's not me blowing smoke. That's me saying that's the difference that New Zealand chip sealed roads makes. It's it's 2K an hour. It's possibly more than that. So yeah. the fact you can get yourself really aerodynamic and go fast for low power sets you up for a really good run without any of the sort of Lionel Sanders style. I put out my best power ever, but my speed wasn't any different. It's not about the power that you're putting out. It's not about the biggest numbers. It's about the smallest numbers. No disrespect to Lionel, who's an amazing athlete. No, you're right. I mean, it, it's, it was so helpful. I hear his voice in my head saying, get out of the wind, get out of the wind, get your shoulders in. And it was good something to focus on mentally as well. You think this is positive. This is making me go quicker. Um, so I was targeting 190 watts, 147. You think, blimey, that's low. Um, but it was quick, you know, 32 Ks now in, in down here. Um, and the other bit around the bike was because I'd done those six hour rides, it, it mentally it didn't really phase you. You just think it's a long ride, but I've done this before twice and I've, I've run fine. Um, that's why the sim weekends massively help you mentally as well as physically. Mm. You don't sort of talk yourself out, you don't back off. You think I've been here before and it was fine. Um, so in, interesting, I come, come down the hill to Taupo, sun came out, I was thinking, wow, excellent. Um, came into T2, my wife saying, you're on for 10.30. The tracker, the Ironman tracker says you're on for 10.30, you're 10th in your age group. And it's like, look, you know, I love you dearly, but don't, don't do that to me. But then I, look, I looked at my watch, because I didn't really set myself a time target. I had some sort of vague idea about what to do, but something around 11.30 would have been a brilliant result. But actually, I've got... I looked at my watch, I'm 7.04 now. If I did a 3.55 marathon, which is well comfortable for me, I can break 11 hours and that'd be like, that'd be amazing. Um, so I bounced off on the run and, and then we get this massive electrical storm and the wheels just came off. And as, you know, this is what Ironman's all about, isn't it? You just think you cracked it and then it absolutely smashes you around the backside with a quick that as a... As you uh, as you think you're about to master it, but I think the run was an experience that um, I'd like to say I wouldn't like to have again. But we've all it was probably my turn to have a bad you know, a suffer on the run, really suffer. Bolton was hard, don't get me wrong, but this was this was another level. So my quads cramped, my hamstrings cramped. I felt sick. I was absolutely drenched. I had this huge storm, and there was lightning hit the lake. It hit, hit something out of the lake about 200 yards away. And um, as I was running, I was thinking, they're going to cancel this. They, they're, they're going to pull us off. And it wasn't just me. The next day, a few athletes were gathering around at the, at the sort of presentation ceremony. They all said they thought it would be pulled because it was just one of those weather moments. But it it sort of backed off a little and it just got just rained on <laughs> for four hours. But it was um, – this is why – I thought Ironman for me was is always just one of those things that's so personal to you because you, you're two and a half laps in, you're absolutely knackered, you can't walk properly, your hamstrings are going, your ambitions for time have maybe gone. And the easiest thing to do is just sort of step off and go and have a cup of tea. But for some reason we don't do it. We just we just grind our teeth and get through it. Um 
so it was a pretty miserable last two two laps um but i got through it and i was just so super super chuffed and i think that the, the way new zealand was slightly different to bolton is that the, the support was phenomenal you don't get the sort of wrestlers like you do up, up there and bolton has its own unique um amazing characteristics in terms of people watching but the volunteers when you cross the line i had mike riley call me over you're an ironman etc um and then you walk into the tent and they have this sort of what they call the chief hug officer, which was this larger than life woman that just came up to me and said, do you want a hug? And I went, yeah. <laughs> so she came with this hug and I was bursting <laughs> and, and she was doing it for loads of people. Was, I thought, can you imagine, have you come across that before? I've never come across that before. But it was it was such a nice thing to do. Uh, and then I got grabbed by a medical person because I obviously wasn't moving very well and just put on a bench and massage for the next hour or so. But the, the, the field tent afterwards, the tent afterwards with the recovery tent, they're never sort of a, a, a place of joy, are they? The bodies everywhere. But this was like two inches in muddy water, steam coming off everybody. It was, uh, yeah, it was a brutal, brutal environment. But I just felt brilliant. I just thought, I've done. I didn't give up. I've done a pretty good time. Um, I was just super chuffed. I think there's a lot that Rob and I can say on the next section. I can see Rob's eyes are about to pop out of his uh, of his eye socket. So I'm not sure what kind of narrative you're going to go for, Rob. But um, from my perspective, um, you know, as I had a privilege of watching your kind of three-month build into the race and had quite a few conversations on email, et cetera, and your dedication commitment pre-race was phenomenal and you were open to ideas you were open to actually backing um taking a bit of a step back from training when needed when your body needed it after your covid injection and all these things which is easier said than done when you know you're getting close to your a race and then when it comes to the actual a race um you did so well on the bike in terms of using it as a cap and not getting too excited and trying to fulfill your absolute potential on the bike and this is where as the coach I I just felt so frustrated for you um, that you did the best possible bike to set up the best possible run and usually that's not the case usually someone does a great bike at, you know and that has a knock-on effect on the run but that wasn't the case here and this is what I kind of really realized when we spoke a few days ago is that you spoke to me about um, how you felt on the bike and everything was good. You hit your nutrition plan, pacing was good, came off the bike, you were feeling motivated, everything was absolutely on track. And then suddenly you talk about the weather having impact, which uh, I'm sure it would have impacted everyone. But then you talk about this cramping in quads, calves, hamstrings, wheels start to fall off. And then it becomes a very different event. But that's the narrative that you gave me. And you were kind of looking for a what what happened you were looking for answers and the obvious answer which we quite quickly came to was that at the beginning of this podcast you spoke about how you had some sort of virus you had some sort of illness but then you swept that under the carpet and carried on with oh but maybe it was electrolytes maybe it was something else but but no I think any physician any doctor would say that you were you were ill and you still got to the start line which um you know, it's a pretty brave decision in itself. But then you went through 11 hours of um, essentially extreme hard work. And what can we expect from someone that's ill at a start line who's about to put themselves through 
kind of extreme physical hardship plus extreme kind of conditions. So, you know, from the coach's point of view, before you'd mentioned that narrative of the illness, I was scratching my head because the the build phase was absolutely brilliant. You did everything right, nutrition, everything right, pacing, everything right. And I'd, I'd struggle to kind of come to an answer of why didn't Ian kind of fulfill his off-the-bike potential when it came to the run? But the answer's there. We've, we've got it on paper. You said you were ill. So from that point onwards, it's it's hard for us as coaches to say you were ill, but let's let's forget that. Let's go back to nutrition. Let's go back to pacing. No, I think we've just got to kind of be honest with ourselves and say you were ill. And how you got to that finish line, I've got absolutely no idea because you had about two hours of absolute hell on that run and everything was against you and everything kind of suggested you should stop now. And as you said, for whatever reason, you didn't. And I think you can carry that into your future races. You know, you've got this incredible mindset that is kind of unbreakable. And, you know, you could see your target time slip out of your hands and you can see the perfect race slipping out of your hands. But who cares? You came for an experience. You got an experience. And hopefully you can build on that. And physically, we know you weren't at your potential on that day because of illness. But you've gained a huge amount of knowledge and you got through hardships which personally i think that's what iron man's all about so um rob i don't know what your narrative was on uh on the actual race performance and an output that that ian put yeah well exactly as you've just said it's really it's the, the really hard thing with iron man is you can't pop one back and do a, do another one in two weeks time if it's kind of a, a once a once or maybe twice a year event isn't it if you've got to the point where you've trained for this if you pick up some kind of virus along the way and you feel good enough to do it but not great you're gonna throw yourself in and as we discussed you're gonna go and give it a go for me the big takeaway from this was what you said about i battled through this and that's what i'm most proud of to me actually i know I know it shouldn't be, but the time's irrelevant to me. I think you'll forget the time in the years to come. What you're left with is I did all of this preparation. I wasn't given great legs on the day. I didn't have the great race day experience in terms of feeling good on the run. You will do one day and you'll get to the finish line and you'll have a much faster time, but it might not be as satisfying looking back. I know some of some of our athletes' best experiences are not necessarily their fastest experiences. And like you've said, it's an amazing experience, but you've proved to yourself that you've got the mental toughness to get through an event like that on a day when you're not feeling great. On the day when everything does come together and the health is there as well as the fitness, I think it'll be a it'll be a faster experience for you. The clock will have 10 something on it. Will it be more enjoyable? Well, you won't be in as much pain, but I don't know whether you'll get as much satisfaction from it afterwards. What are your reflections, Ian, looking back on that? I think, I think, you're, I think you're bang on. I mean, the satisfaction was I was in a big hole and I just, no, no, not one point I think of giving up and so I'm just going to get to the mm. finish here. And although the, the run wasn't, was maybe 20 minutes slower than I wanted, I didn't feel, I felt, uh, the next day I felt a sense of missed opportunity but I didn't feel it was just an awesome experience. Yeah. And and actually, same as Bolton, it was a great experience because it was miserable weather and a really hard course. And you put yourself through the mill and you come out the other side. This was better because it was even harder, even though I was fitter. And you really test yourself, don't you? I mean, 
I could do 10Ks every week. And I'm not sure you'd remember one from the other, but you do remember this. You will remember this in 20 years' time. And you'll be, you'd also kind of, this is what I, I learned from the last one is that you do all sorts of things in life, but actually it's when you, in those dark moments on your own or you're scaring yourself and you manage to pull yourself through it, they're the things that are only meaningful to you. Um, and that's what's important. I think. It's not for anyone else, is it? No one really cares what time you do. It's it's how you felt and what you did and you pushed yourself further than you thought you were going to. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of it, I learned loads. I've learned loads. I mean, I feel like I've just gone back to school um, and it was an awesome experience and I would definitely go back. I'd do it again. I'd recommend it to anybody, even with the weather, even with the weather. Especially, especially with the weather, you know, you sign up for a, you sign up for physical challenge and and you get one that you're going to remember. (laughs) Right. Let me ask you this one. This is my last question for today. With the experience and knowledge that you've got now, the, the experience you've had over the last couple of years, if you could go back in time to the start of your triathlon journey, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out on there if we've got a listener or a, or a viewer who's just starting out their Ironman journey now what advice would you give to them that you wish you'd known back then I would I would get someone to give you some structured coping like this I mean I think you'd expect me to say that but it it it's a game changer really because it gives you context and a focus around what you're going to do and it allows someone else to make the decisions for you. And, and I, I quickly learned to trust that the program worked for me. Um, but the big, the big thing above that is patience and consistency. Nothing happens in a week, nothing happens in a month. You've really just got to stick with it. Um, and as Chris said, you know, it's the first time I've had that opportunity and I've come on so far. I mean, just take a bike, for example, compared to Bowwood, where I was white knuckles thinking, oh, I can't do this. And just a year later, you know, doing something in my 50s that I thought I probably would never get close to doing just because I stuck at it. Um, and it, I'd say it's a long game, that patience and that consistency, but also set yourself a big, big goal. and commit to it because if you don't do that then you've got nothing to work towards that's brilliant that's really great hey well listen i've I've really enjoyed hearing your story i've really enjoyed it it's um it, it's always great when an athlete has an amazing experience and sometimes that's winning the world championships and sometimes that's going faster than they than they thought they would but equally valid i think is i got to do this race and the Maoris came out of the water in a boat and lightning struck the water. I mean, I think you literally experienced that maybe once in your life, running outdoors as lightning strikes the water. So that's a that's a a, a world best experience right there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully the Maoris weren't on the water, because that would have not been so good. But yeah, that that was yeah, it was it's great. And if anyone wants to go to New Zealand, just just do it because such a rich experience not just the race but the whole place amazing all right ian listen thank you very much from both of us it's been awesome talking to you and uh, we wish you all the best for the future good stuff and thanks guys couldn't have done it without you 
Ah, what a wonderful story, and I hope that's I hope that's left you uh, you fired up, ready for some enthusiasm for the coming race season. Um, I know we've got listeners all around the world, but if you're in the UK winter right now, it's uh, it can feel like the racing season is a very long way away indeed. So. Thanks very much to Ian for joining us all the way from down in Australia and talking about 70.3 Sydney and Ironman, um, Ironman New Zealand. It, it literally does feel like a different world, doesn't it? Listening to somebody describe racing down in heat when it's the winter time here. But I hope that's inspired you that few few weeks time, few months time, it's going to be time for you to get racing again as well if you're living up here in the Northern Hemisphere and in the UK. So... We'll wrap this show up. I want to say thank you very much to our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Remember, you can use the code OA23 for 15% off your first electrolyte order. And if you've liked what you've heard today with Ian's story of how his training has changed after training with Team Oxygen Addict, I think we've got the most comprehensive endurance sports coaching program for busy age groupers. And if you'd like to find out whether we can help you out on your journey, whether that's for Ironman 70.3, ultra running, duathlon, aqua bike, running, marathon, sportifs, swim runs, whatever your event is, you name it. I think we can help you out. I'm sure we can help you out. And I know we've got a training plan that's going to mean you're training more time efficiently and you'll get bigger gains for less time spent training with less worry, more importantly. So you can book a call with me or Coach Chris to see if you'd be a good fit for joining the team. There's a link in the show notes to do that. It'll just book straight through to our calendar and we can have 30 minutes over coffee to see how we could best help you get the race results that you, uh, you really deserve this year. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you join us. Remember that there's links in the show notes so you don't have to remember them. And if you've not been over to YouTube yet and liked and subscribed to the new YouTube channel, please do that. That'd be great. It'll really help the channel grow and that'll help us reach and help more people. Until next week, have a great safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby and you've been listening to the Oxygen Addict podcast. See ya. See ya.